Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from SAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Forstein. And I'm Damian Gardet. It's Thursday, July 28th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Stats' Helen Branswell joins us to explain the latest in the monkeypox outbreak and health authorities' efforts to contain it. And we'll discuss the latest news in the life sciences, including some faked Alzheimer's data, a brewing FDA controversy, and a $200,000 gift. But first, a word about another of Stats' podcasts. For far too long, racism has created a crisis in American healthcare. The whole system has failed my niece and they are continuing to fail women of color. We say something is wrong with us, it's ignored. No one is listening. My name is Nicholas St. Fleur. I'm a science reporter and host of Color Code, a new podcast from STAT. I mean, I have a mistrust of the medical establishment and I'm a researcher, like, and, 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 and part of mine is just of how I've seen providers treat my family members. Culico takes a hard look at the forces behind the stark inequities faced by black clinicians and patients. You can find Color Code on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and wherever you get your podcasts. You know, our education related to health equity kind of sucks, like in med school, right? And I'm tired of having these conversations over and over and over. And someone is like, oh, no, it's not because of X, Y, and Z inequality. And I'm like, actually, it is. Racism in medicine is a national emergency. Let's raise the alarm. So, Allison, uh, I understand that you went to uh, the Elton John concert last night. Uh, does that is that hurting your podcasting voice today? Were you singing along to Elton John last night? Oh, you know I was, Adam. Um, yeah, if listeners, if you feel that my podcasting voice has suffered this morning, please let us know. Um, it was a great concert. I have no regrets. Sorry, read out loud, listeners. <laughs> I made this sacrifice. I stand by it. <laughs> uh, let's move on to COVID and particularly no COVID, or maybe we could call it never COVID. You know, there was this interesting story in the Wall Street Journal this week about, I guess, the shrinking number of people who have never been infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Uh, I, I just found it interesting because, I, I mean, you know, I guess we'll make this a little bit personal. I don't think I've ever had COVID. Uh, I don't think I've not, ever had COVID that I know. either. Yeah. So, you know, are we getting to a point where is that going to be like a special status for people who never had COVID? I think part of the issue, though, as someone who had it relatively or rather tested positive relatively recently, as I went through what was mercifully a pretty mild case, I realized that probably I had it in the early part of the pandemic in 2020. And I think, you know, recalling back then when, at least in the United States, testing was virtually unheard of for quite a few months, more people, especially in like major metro areas and specifically New York, more people had it than probably know that they had it. And we may never know. I think that's probably true. I mean, I do remember one time and it was early on in the pandemic. This is like early, like, you know, early 2020, right? That I thought that maybe I had it. But then again, if you think back to that, like, so we knew so little about 
COVID back then, right? And like you said, Damien, there was no, like you couldn't get tested. Remember how you couldn't get testing? I remember like there was that point where people were going to get antibody testing to see if they had had it. Because of course, this was all before there were any drugs to treat COVID. It was certainly way before the vaccines. Um, but it is it is interesting that, you know, so many people are getting it now uh, and so many people are getting reinfected now that, you know, that, that the group of this group of people, you know, if you want to call them the sort of the never covids or the no covids, um, that's a it's interesting. I, I don't know. I, I guess I, I count myself in that group. But, uh, you know, who knows? You know, knock on wood. <laughs> I have told multiple people, you know, that I've that I've spoken to, you know, discussing who's had covid, who hasn't had covid. I haven't had it yet. Um, that I know of, knock on wood. Um, and everybody remarks, wow, that's really rare. <laughs> I'm joking at this point that, you know, in the 28 weeks later version of this pandemic, maybe I have an antidote. I'm very I'm very intrigued about this. Like there was an article, um, I, I want to say potentially in the New York Times about, you know, looking at is there a genetic factor or predisposition that, you know, gives you some sort of boost against COVID, I'm very intrigued because I have had close calls. I've had exposures, have not gotten it yet. Knock on wood. Let's hope that I don't start next week's podcast by with, <laughs> yeah, right. with a you know, author's <laughs> this, note. This, right. This this discussion guarantees that we're all we're all going to get COVID again. But let me say one special plea. Can we please stop tweeting about our COVID status? No more tweets saying I had COVID. No more photos of your rapid antigen test. I really, I just. Um, when okay, I get COVID, on. I'm specifically <laughs> tweeting at you, Adam. No, don't do that. Don't, I don't want to. I don't want to block. I don't want to block my coworker. Okay, so don't do that. Um, so sticking with COVID, but moving on to vaccines, Damien. Uh, there was a big meeting at the White House this week. I guess you could call it kind of a summit. Uh, about next generation COVID vaccines. Can you tell us what happened there? That's right. So I, I think the ringleader of it was Ashish Shah, former guest of this podcast and current uh, coordinator of the White House Coronavirus Response, I believe is his title. And yeah, to your point, it was designed as a sort of scientific and somewhat business summit discussing the potential for next generation COVID-19 vaccines, which is to say those that would confer a broader immunity such that they wouldn't be as susceptible to the mutations that have apparently had a pretty serious deleterious effect on the efficacy of the very good vaccines that we do have. And so, you know, there were companies, there were scientists, and they discussed a lot of really promising ideas, whether that be an intranasal vaccine, vaccines that would be kind of more ecumenical in terms of like the spike proteins that they would encode for such that, I mean, it was, it was all really interesting stuff. But as uh, Lev Fasher, our colleague who was, who was in the room and covered it, for stat pointed out that there was this kind of elephant in the room of who's going to pay for all of this. The you know magic of the COVID vaccine development that we witnessed in 2020 was underwritten by a multi-billion dollar federal effort called Operation Warp Speed. And so the question remains, would there be a warp speed too? And I think there is, you know, clearly will for such a thing in the White House and at the NIH, but will there be political will in Congress to fund that? Because we're you know, wasn't that long ago that the White House was struggling to get a relatively small amount of money just to pay for new tests um, and new orders of vaccines. And so, I mean, that's going to be, I think, a question. It's probably a lower order political question heading into the midterms. I don't know, you know, how many uh, New Hampshire diner goers are going to be talking about the potential of intranasal vaccine research and development. But it's something to watch going forward because it's very clear that the scientific promise exists 
and that obviously the companies would love to get federal funding to uh, to under underroll their research. But as to whether it's actually going to happen, I mean, is something that, that I think remains an open question. This feels like an opportunity for a quote unquote summit of ideas that could very easily go nowhere, in my opinion, or really couldn't amount to a huge effort. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it's the kind of undertaking that would be required to demonstrate, I mean, this is assuming that any of these things advance to the stage where they'd be ready for a massive clinical trial. But I think sometimes we forget because it all happened so quickly that the Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson, Johnson, the phase three studies in which these vaccines proved themselves were upwards of 30,000 people each. It's conceivable that we would need that again. Um, and it would be, you know, all of the challenges of recruitment. There are already vaccines out there. I mean, there's a lot of complexity. It's not impossible, um, but it would be a massive undertaking. Well, and I think that like the incentive for the drug companies is is not what it was back in 2020. I mean, obviously, we are all still talking about Pfizer and Moderna and their vaccines. But, you know, what kind of, you know, in terms of the investor interest and, you know, the the commercial sense, the the treatments that we have out there don't seem to be, you know, real headline grabbers, real stock drivers, unless there is this big investment from the federal government. It doesn't seem like there's much incentive for the drug companies to say, hey, this is a big commercial effort for us to look at, you know, intranasal vaccines or, you know, different types of treatments or different, you know, spike protein focused, you know, drugs. The the scenario there, you know, kind of like the cost benefit seems off. So I have nothing to add to this conversation, but I do in the in the spirit of Chatty Cathy, we are going to move on because, uh, Allison, I wanted to get your reaction to the news this week about Biogen. Yes, again, Biogen. But this time their ALS drug, it's called Topperson. Uh, it is going to be uh, reviewed by the FDA. This is a treatment for ALS. What were your thoughts when you when you saw that news? This is all I want to talk about this week, because I, I find this scenario very fascinating that the FDA, after all of the scrutiny that it's been subjected to for how it ha handled Aduhelm, has now decided that it is going to review Biogen's ALS drug, Topherson, um, or Topherson, however you want to say it, um, you know, and, and potentially look at approving it, even though the clinical data that was produced was not great. This is also keep in mind that we have another ALS drug that is before the FDA right now from Amelix um, that reaches a much broader population of people. Um, you know, Topherson is only targeted at like, I think it's less than 2%. Yeah, it's about 2%. Yeah, it's a it's a genetic, it's a it's that genetic uh, form of ALS. It's called SOD1 ALS. So it's, yeah, it's a very rare form of it. So it's this huge, I mean, like I saw a, an analyst note, we're talking like $100 million to $200 million, you know, sales opportunity if it gets approved. For Biogen, like from the Biogen perspective, it just feels like this is Biogen saying we need a win. You know, we need, we need a win after the last couple of years that we've had. But from the FDA perspective, I, I struggle to understand why they're putting themselves in this scenario when you have, they're already facing so much criticism for the last neurodrug that they approved, um, neurodrug from this company, Biogen, that by all accounts, I mean, unless I'm, I'm out of date here, um, you know, there were, you know, congressional inquiries into how that approval was handled um, that I believe are still open. So I don't understand why the FDA is putting itself in that position. 
Yeah, I mean, for, from on the one hand, I can, I mean, I can sort of see why they're doing it because, you know, they've established the FDA at least has established this precedent of, you know, flexibility. You know, you know, rightly or wrongly, right? They they now have said well, we're going to be more flexible when it comes to these neurodegenerative, you know, neurology based diseases or whatever, and and so you know, if someone, if company X files and company Y files, and they have to sort of treat them equally. I mean, I think what's really what is very interesting here is like like you said, Allison, uh, you know, Toberson's their phase three study. They ran you know a significant randomized placebo controlled study back uh, last uh, last year, last fall. The results, you know, it it failed, right? There, there was no there was no difference in in the slowing of of disease progression uh, for Toverson compared to the control arm. Um, you know, they are they have filed this for an accelerated approval, and it's based on a surrogate marker called uh, neurofilament. Uh, which is a uh, protein that is can be at high levels can be toxic to to nerves, and this drug does seem to lower uh, neurofilament levels. Um, whether that correlates to benefit for patients is not clear. Uh, the data on that and the science on that are very mixed. So this is a very again uh, like other examples that you cited. This is another f- kind of fuzzy picture. Um, you know, we know that the ALS patient community has been very vocal and very active in pressuring the FDA to to at least uh, review drugs, uh, you know, for you know, as treatments for ALS. So this all sort of sort of fits into that bucket. Once again, I'm I'm very intrigued as to what's happening behind the scenes because you look at Amelix's drug, which treats a a broader swath of that ALS population and had better clinical trial results. Um, initially, the FDA wasn't sure that they were going to take a look at that drug. They they wanted them to go back and, and run more studies. That was the initial guidance that Amlex got. And it was only after, you know, the I think the patient organizations kind of, you know, took up arms and, and you know, criticized the FDA that the FDA said that they are going to review it for approval. The, the background conversation of this, you know, how the FDA is handling this flexibility with neurodrugs, uh, the train of thought I'm having a hard time following with the FDA in regards to some of these drugs, because it, it feels like the conversation around Amelix's drug has been different than the conversation, at least publicly, around Tofersen. I'm, I'm What's happening behind the scenes at the FDA with the conversations for these two drugs? I'm struggling to follow the train of thought. Switching topics again, Damien, I wanted to throw one to you. Uh, this week saw the publication uh, of a story, really a pretty good story by Charlie Piller in Science uh, about some uh, research a fraud uh, that has been discovered in, in, in the field of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, what did you think of that story? And, and maybe more interesting, what did you think about the reaction to that story? Yeah, I thought it was fascinating. And yeah, our former stat colleague, Charlie Piller, dating back to 2015? Anyway, Charlie, for listening, hey, how you doing? Um, I thought it was great. I thought it was a good story. Uh, I'm trying to fit it into, there's so many narratives that it touches upon, but I guess foremost is it's about Alzheimer's research that was plainly doctored uh, in a way that is embarrassing for all parties involved um, and implicating of, of especially the, <laughs> the researchers who were at the heart of it. But I think the reason that it caught on, that the reaction was so strong, is that the research in question relates to the amyloid hypothesis. I won't get into the depths of it. It's not something that's like foundational to what all of the work in anti-amyloid Alzheimer's treatments is based on, but it is 
part of the the body of of evidence that is often used to support this. And so that evidence pretty uh, conclusively demonstrated to have been doctored and its conclusions thus you know, needing to be tossed out. But the notion that it feels weird that I'm, I'm now positioning myself to defend the amyloid hypothesis, but the notion that it completely undercuts the last two decades of basic research, clinical research, drug development, et cetera, is a little hasty. And I only saw, I feel like I only saw a few people drawing that really sweeping conclusion. Um, I thought, you know, Derek Lowe, who also a former guest of this podcast, um, had a pretty sensible take on what the implications of this all are, which are that, you know, as I said, it's embarrassing. Any kind of research fraud is uh, something to be taken quite seriously and that everyone involved in the process, whether they be peer reviewers, journal editors, whatever, should spend some time considering how this took place. But again, the notion that we now must change our understanding of how Alzheimer's works and how maybe it should be interrogated by a drug is a little much. Um, That being said, Many people have already changed those notions based on the clinical evidence demonstrated by anti-amyloid drugs, but that's between them uh, and their god. But anyway, it was—I thought it was an excellent story. You don't need like this this one paper, you know, this one investigation um, to kind of discount the amyloid hypothesis. I think that the last several years of drug development, where you've had failure after failure. Um, and, you know, of, of research where continual questions have been raised about the amyloid hypothesis that that's doing the work itself. <laughs> this is this is just another it almost feels like another like drop in the bucket against the amyloid hypothesis. Um, certainly like this alone, I don't think is damning um, to that that train of thought. All right. So let's end on um, I don't know, let's end on a Web3 note. <laughs> well, you know, we're, we're Metaverse, Web3, DeFi, all the cool stuff. Uh, did you guys see the University of Pennsylvania apparently created an NFT, a non-fungible token that honors, uh, I guess, their contribution, Penn Medicine's contribution to mRNA research. And they uh, they auctioned off this NFT. Uh, I think it was at Christie's auction house where this... I guess this is a virtual auction since this is an NFT. Um, Damien, how much did they get for this NFT? Uh, according to the Christie's website, they got in excess of $225,000. That's amazing. It's amazing for something that I think it was pointed out online. Um, you know, this this certainly wasn't like a unique, this this... Um, you know, it doesn't like transfer over any like patent rights. It's it's an it's an image. I'm reading from a story that was uh, written about this in the actually in the Daily Pennsylvanian, which is the student newspaper at Penn, and it said Penn's NFT is a one minute long 3D animation of the modified mRNA technology that protects someone's immune system from COVID nineteen. So they made a little movie. Uh, and they sold it for $228,000. <laughs> I mean, kudos to whoever bought it. Presumably they know what they're getting into. Um, and, and also, well, I won't even get into the fact. I think it was traded in Ethereum, the whole cryptocurrency angle. I don't know, whatever. Penn can do whatever it wants. The thing that I found kind of interesting is that if you talk to the two scientists at the heart of this discovery, which is changing um, one of the components of mRNA such that, Adam, as you said, it would be less immunogenic. 
Genaic? I don't know how to pronounce that word. The point is, it's a it's a key cornerstone in the fact that we have mRNA vaccines and, and potentially many other mRNA-type medicines coming through. But if you talk to the scientists behind it, which are Drew Weissman and Katalin Kadiko, who uh, both were at UPenn at the time, the way they describe the process of discovery is one of perseverance on the part of them and their colleagues in the face of skepticism, if not, in Kadiko's case, demotion from the powers that be at Penn. So the notion of Penn the institution kind of patting itself on the back with this NFT sale doesn't totally square with the actual story of the discovery. Maybe those, maybe Weissman and Caraco, maybe they bought it. Maybe they bought the <laughs> NFT. You know, rub it in Penn's face. <laughs> it also should, I mean, it should be noted, like Penn isn't the first academic institution to do this. I mean, Berkeley has been, you know, creating and, and auctioning off NFTs of, I believe, some of Jennifer Doudna's work. Harvard has, you know, do, done the same with George Church's genome. The, like, commercialization in the science world of, like, this research as a form, in the form of NFT, um, is fascinating. I, I wrote about this last month. You know, there are some organizations that are actually, like, licensing and auctioning off IP as NFTs. But the idea of, you know, George Church and, you know, this uh, Penn's, you know, mRNA research just kind of being created into fun, like almost like collector's item that one person gets um, is just such a sign of the times. We're all going to listen back to this this podcast in 10 years and, and think, what was going on in 2022? On Wednesday, the FDA announced the clearance of nearly 800,000 doses of the monkeypox vaccine for distribution in the U.S. It's a move that officials said would start to ease a supply shortage that has hampered the fight against the growing outbreak. And then on Saturday, the World Health Organization declared the unprecedented monkeypox outbreak a public health emergency. To date, there have been more than 19,000 cases of monkeypox reported globally, including 4,600 cases in the U.S., Joining us to discuss yet another public health emergency is STAT's indefatigable infectious disease reporter, Helen Branswell. Helen, it is great to have you back on the podcast. It's nice to be here, but I am very fatigable and I am very fatigued. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So true. So, Helen, you know, the, you last visited us uh, on the podcast in the middle of May to talk about the unusual cases of hepatitis that were being reported in children. And, you know, that was right around the same time when the first cases of monkeypox were being reported. And so, you know, I tacked a question onto the end of that May interview asking you what's going on with monkeypox. And your response was, quote, this is a big deal and it's going to be a big deal for a while, end quote. No surprise, Helen, you were right. Um, so I guess I want to ask you, you know, can this virus be contained or is it too late? Well, you know, the answer to that depends on who you ask. Um, public health authorities, the WHO, the CDC, they insist that there is still a window of opportunity to stop this outbreak. But it is really large and growing daily. And, you know, it's <laughs> the, the issue here is that it's, it doesn't have to be just stopped in the United States. It has to be stopped in, um, 
78 countries and counting around the world. And uh, that's going to be a huge challenge. Uh, there isn't enough vaccine to go around. Uh, some of those countries, you know, in some of the countries where cases either are now or likely will be found soon, having, you know, men having sex with other men is a crime. So encouraging those people to come forward for public health uh you know, treatment and to get a sense of of how large an outbreak is, is, is that's a challenging situation. So I guess the short answer is the authorities say, yes, there's still a chance. A lot of the experts I talk to think the, you know, the, the cat is already out of the bag. The messaging around this, you know, monkeypox outbreak has been really interesting from the get-go. It's been a huge topic of conversation. And we saw the the WHO this week change its messaging about how to fight the outbreak, recommending that, you know, men who have sex with men limit their number of sexual partners to reduce the risk of infection. Why, you know, a couple months in, are we still kind of focusing on that group of people? And what is the significance of that messaging from the WHO? Well, the answer to why are we focusing on that group of people is because to date, it seems like about 98 or 99 percent of the cases globally are occurring in men who have sex with men and particularly networks of men who have a lot of sex with other men and sometimes anonymous sex. That's why the messaging is is targeting them. Um the messaging from the start has been really challenging and frankly quite tentative. Uh, you know, initially, uh, public health authorities were concerned about naming uh, gay and bisexual men who have, and other men who have sex with men as sort of the, the group in which these cases were occurring because everybody remembers what happened in the early 80s when, um, AIDS emerged the when HIV st- first started to spread and um, it was initially obviously in um, g- gay men and there was huge stigma attached to uh, that community because of the the transmission of AIDS and you know everybody is very concerned that that community not be re-stigmatized uh, because of monkeypox. So, you know, for a while, public health people were kind of bending themselves into pretzels, trying not first not to sort of say too much about where the virus was spreading. And then they started talking about where the virus was spreading, but they don't want to stigmatize. And so um, yesterday, you know, so people have been sort of tiptoeing around this notion that maybe um, behavior modification is going to need to be a part of the the response here. And yesterday at uh, their weekly press conference, the director general of the WHO actually suggested that men who have sex with other men consider reducing their the number of um, sexual contacts they have, uh, sexual partners, excuse me, consider reducing the number of sexual partners they have and consider exchanging contact details with people that they have sex with so that they can assist contact tracers if um, if some you know if one of them develops monkeypox I wrote about it as a new 
sort of messaging approach. I I wasn't alone. I did get some pushback from the WHO after the story moved, suggesting that they've been talking about this for a while, but it's really the first time the director general was so specific about it. So there is a vaccine to protect against monkeypox infection. It's called Genios, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. And it's made by Bavarian Nordic, a small company in Denmark. I know there's been some news on this this week, but what's the current status of supply internationally and in the U.S.? Is it being distributed equitably and, and is there enough to satisfy demand? So, yes, there there is a vaccine that is uh, licensed to prevent um, monkeypox in the United States, in Canada, uh, I think the European Union and the UK are using it on an emergency basis. Um, it has actually not been proven to prevent infection in people it, because, because of the challenges of trying to test something for a rare disease. It was licensed using what's called the animal rule, so data from animals. Uh, the assumption is that it will be effective, but you know, one of the things that the World Health Organization keeps repeating is that it would it countries that are using it really need to gather data to show how effective it is against monkeypox. In terms of supply, there isn't enough. Uh, the United States owns most of what exists because the United States. Um, because this, this vaccine, frankly, exists because uh, the United States, BARDA, uh, develop, you know, paid for the development of it. It was um, developed because of U.S. concerns about smallpox as a potential weapon of bioterror, and um, you know, the U.S. has been very has been instrumental in developing this vaccine and and having supplies of the vaccine actually made in advance. Um, much of what exists is in bulk form. It's not, you know, it hasn't gone through what's called fill and finish. And that process can take a while. So, you know, listeners will have heard um, changing numbers virtually every week. You know, there are X tens of thousands of doses now in the United States and X low numbers of hundreds of thousands of doses in the United States. This week, um, the FDA announced that um, close to 800,000 doses have been cleared to be brought into the United States. And so that will happen. Uh, Globally, the thinking is that there are about 16 million doses of vaccine at present. The company has been taking orders uh, and has you know, promised to ramp up production. But, um, you know, as this outbreak spreads and the number of countries that need doses increases, there is, there's not enough. And the prospects of there being enough in the near term are not, non-existent. Helen, in a story you wrote last week, you said one of the challenges in stopping the monkeypox outbreak is that, it, you know, it's coming two and a half years into this COVID pandemic. You know, public health workforces around the globe are uh, running on fumes. And you went on to quote an expert in emergency preparedness and response in Europe, you know, who's been working on like three public health emergencies simultaneously. And she told you, quote, 
We are piling up one difficult outbreak on top of a pandemic, and I think it is too much for the public health services and authorities all over. I think this is the trickiest part, end quote. So I guess my question to you is, you know, you know, again, all, all these public health experts, you know, people inside, outside governments, uh, all these systems that we have in place, they seem, you know, are they at a breaking point, you know, when it comes to dealing with all of these existing and emerging outbreaks? I don't know if I would say breaking point. I mean, people who work in public health are, you know, by their very nature, very dedicated people. I mean, they probably all could be earning a lot more money elsewhere. Uh, they do it because they're, you know, they're believers. But there is a lot going on and it is very difficult. I mean, you know, think of how tired we are after, you know, two and a half years of the COVID pandemic. And now, you know, there, there's this on top of it, and this is getting bigger and bigger, and COVID hasn't gone away. You know, this may give you a sort of an indication of, of how complicated everything is. You mentioned in the intro that the last time I was here was to talk about um, the mysterious cases of uh, pediatric hepatitis that seem to be going on and, and the efforts to try to figure out what was causing them. Um, this week, the UK released, scientists in the UK released a new theory about what is behind that outbreak. And I was trying to get someone at the CDC to comment on it because, of course, there have been cases in the United States and the CDC has been involved in trying to figure out what what is behind this. And I couldn't get anybody, I couldn't get an interview. And when I asked about it, I was told, well, that group, is also heavily involved in the COVID response and they're involved in the investigation of the polio case in New York State that was announced late last week. I mean, you know, the same people are trying to juggle a lot of stuff and uh, that is not helping. I mean, this outbreak, I think, would have been difficult to contain if this were happening in peace times, and this, these are not peace times. Wow. Well, Helen, we love having you on the podcast. I'm hoping, not to be rude, but I'm hoping we don't have you on to talk about another outbreak for a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of these days, Helen, we're going to have you on to talk about the end of an <laughs> How's that? That'll be fun, right? We'll, we'll have a big I, I, celebration. I was a little worried there when you said the end. I was like, I don't know when that's coming. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, yeah. If, if it's the end, then we won't be having a podcast. Yeah. But yeah. hopefully we can have you on to talk about the end of one of these. Yeah, that would be great. Um, yes, I, I would like that. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you think of this week's episode, what you didn't like, and how many tweets you're going to send Damien and Adam with your positive COVID test results. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. Block, 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 block. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.